We're in a series on divine community. We're talking about the church, its nature, its power, and its function. The first week when we got together, we began our discussion by talking about what the church isn't and talking about some common misconceptions of the church, and then we discussed what the church is. The church is the ecclesia, the gathering of God's called out ones. That's what's happening here with believers in this room and even there at home with those who are joining us. It is the gathering of God's called out ones. We talked in the second week about divine authority and about how the church is not like the rest of the world. Authority in the church is servant leadership. It's something God specifically put into play that really differentiates authority here from authority out there. Week three, when we gathered together, we talked about being a community of practices, and we looked at a number of things that the church does every week. Functions, the stuff we do and why we do it. Today, as we gather together, we're going to talk about being a community of worship and spend our whole time discussing worship, what it is, the function of it, the purpose of it. We're going to take it in really three parts. The first part I want to do, kind of what I've done in weeks past, I want to unpack misconceptions about worship. Second part, we want to talk about biblically what worship actually is. We're going to get into some of the original languages to try to understand what worship means when they mention it in the Old and New Testament. And then lastly, we want to talk about what the worshiping church looks like, how we can apply this week by week. I want to start out by telling you a story that happened in my house yesterday. Um, Lisa had put together kind of this cool project for the boys to engage in. She'd gotten tree branches, like small ones, and they, they put them in kind of jars, and then they cut out little little leaves out of construction paper, and they punched holes in them, and then they strung strings through them, and the, the boys wrote things they were thankful for in the leaves, and then they hung them up on the tree, right? And so I walked into the room as this was going on, and uh, it was mentioned that uh, one of the boys had my name and Aiden's name and Gracie's name, but forgot someone rather important. Now, Col Colton had, uh, I'll name him, uh, Colton had just gone to the eye doctor, Lisa had had him out during the day, she had put together this whole craft for him. Everything that was involved in here was for them, and they were getting to the point where they're, they're starting to write thankful things on the, on the leaves that were like, thankful for pens, <laughs> thankful for hole punchers. They didn't even know what a hole puncher was until they did this project, but apparently we're thankful for that. And Lisa, Lisa says to Colton, she says, um, Colton, are you missing anything or anyone? <laughs> nope. Didn't get it. Sometimes I feel like this is sort of what happens with us and worship. Like, like the whole purpose of the one we're supposed to be offering gratitude to the, the one that we're supposed to be honoring, we have left aside. We've set him aside, and we're thanking him for things, or we're focused on things that don't really matter, our proverbial pens and hole punchers. And we think that's what worship is about. There's no question that the manner and structure of worship in the church has been the cause for probably more division within churches during the last 30 years than any other major feature. And that includes major theological discussions as well. And yet, the matter remains one that is profoundly misunderstood among most Christians. Many of those, most of those people willing to offer criticism and be divisive on this matter have never stopped to ask that ultimate important question, what is worship? Instead, they just view it as a personal preference matter. We want to ask that question today, what is worship? One of the great theologians of this past century, A.W. Tozer, have any of you read A.W. Tozer, any of his stuff? All right, if you haven't yet, I encourage you to do so. Read The Pursuit of God. It's a phenomenal book. Tozer is actually the, uh, the guy that we named my son Aiden after. Right? Here's what Tozer says. He was in an interview in 1954. He's a great pastor. He was the editor of the Alliance Witness. He was asked this question, what he thought would awaken the church from its complacency. In other words, the church is full of a bunch of do-nothings, people who just show up and aren't accomplishing anything for the kingdom of God. The question comes to him, what is it that will drive people to do something, to wake up? Here's what he responded with. In my opinion, the great single need of the moment is that the lighthearted, superficial religionists 
lighthearted, superficial religionists, just religious people who just kind of meander into church. It's just something they do. That the lighthearted, superficial religionists be struck down with a vision of God, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The holy art of worship seems to have passed away like the Shekinah glory from the temple. As a result, we are left to our own devices, and we're forced to make up the lack of spontaneous worship, or make up for the lack of spontaneous worship. Hear that phrase for just a moment. Spontaneous worship. Spontaneous worship. It just emerges. It just happens. Do you think Isaiah in the Old Testament, do you think he had to be coached on what to do when he found himself in the, in the presence of God in heavenly realms? Do you think anybody had to say to him, hey, Isaiah, you know what would be great for you right now? Worship. No. He knew what to do. When he was in the presence of God, he flopped on his face. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He, he was ready to die because he was in the presence of God. That is spontaneous worship. In other words, he says this, we're, we're forced to make up for the lack of spontaneous worship that is legitimately coming into the presence of God by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of church people. When we enter this place, when we gather together, are we coming into the presence of God? And if not, whose fault is that? Well, we're going to tear into the issue of misunderstandings concerning worship. But before we do, let's see how well you've worshipped with your mind this past week. Oh, no, we're supposed to be memorizing Scripture. Oh, yes, you're supposed to be memorizing Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. Let's see how we're doing. Ready? And let us consider how to encourage one another. So you're like, this is like, this is like listening to somebody sing a song who doesn't know the lyrics. It's like, rev up like I do another runner. Let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not forsaking or abandoning our own meeting together. Not abandoning this, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging, we repeated something, which means it's important, but encouraging one, or encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the end or day drawing near. All right? As you see the day drawing near, is the day more near today than when it was written? What day are we talking about? The day, the day Christ returns. Encourage one another, even more as the day draws near. Hey, we're closer, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we'll be one day closer than today. So let's keep encouraging one another, building one another up in love and good deeds. All right, memorize this verse, but not just the words. Memorize the concepts, understand the concepts. Amen? Amen. All right, let's talk about some common misconceptions regarding worship. Common misconceptions regarding worship. Misconception one, number one, God needs me to worship him. God needs me to worship him. Uh, we keep chickens at our house. We've, we've got, not, not in our house, but we've got a chicken coop, and so we have to buy those 50-pound bags of feed every once in a while, and sometimes we're doing projects around the house, so we've got to get the 80-pound sacks of, of, of uh, concrete. Have you ever lifted one of those? That's a lot of fun, isn't it? Um, but for, for a guy my size, it's not too difficult, right? You throw it up on your shoulder and you walk it out to where it's supposed to go. My boys, though, awesome as they are, sometimes want to help. And so they're like, can I help you carry that? I want to help you carry that. Well, it's one thing to have a sack of that on your shoulder. It's quite another thing to try to hold it between you and a five-year-old, right? Which is more work? Holding between the two. Sometimes I feel like we're approaching God going, hey, can I help you with my worship today? You're so lucky, Lord, that I'm showing up to contribute my honor and power to you. Now, think about this question. Does our worship make God more powerful? No. Some pagan faiths, in fact, many pagan faiths throughout the centuries, had this notion that if they wanted their God to be great, they had to worship their God. The more they honored their God, the more powerful their God became. So the God is somewhat dependent on human worship, but our God is not like that. Do you remember in, um, in the New Testament where Paul is in Ephesus and uh, these silversmiths in Ephesus, these guys who make idols, they started getting together and they were angry 
because these Christians were taking worship away from Artemis, and they were giving it to this, this foreign god. And so they were furious, and they incited a riot in the city. And you remember, they rounded up several Christians. They, they drug them down into the stadium, the, 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 uh, the stadium that was local to that region, and they fill up the stands. And you'll notice that as they're in the stands, they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, why are they doing that? If if you're reading scripture and you're like me, you're like, well, that doesn't, that seems boring. But look at what, look at the mindset. They thought they were bestowing power on their God and taking it away from this God. That's how they viewed what was transpiring there. God does not need anything. God does not need anything. Psalm chapter 50 um, they're talking about sacrifices, which was a form of worship in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. They would bring in sacrifices to the temple. And in this passage, what is said here is interesting. God says, I own every beast in the forest. It's mine. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. They're mine. I own every bird that flies through the air. In other words, the very best thing you can give me is just something I've already put there. It's like the kid who gives you something for Christmas, but you had to kind of give them the money and then pay for it and help them pick it out, but then they gave it to you, right? It's, it's not that you needed that, but they needed that. And so here's what worship is, and, and to understand it rightly, God does not need worship from you, but you need to worship God. You need to engage in that process of worship. Let me say it this way. When we worship God, we are placing ourselves in the most important place we can be in the cosmos. We are placing ourselves in the right position for human beings. Worship of God is the thing we are most meant to be doing during the course of this existence. You are most fully human when you worship God. And when you fail to, you're not human. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, God wants us to worship him. He doesn't need us. For he couldn't be a self-sufficient God and need anything or anybody, but he wants us. He then says this, When Adam sinned, it was not he who cried out, God, where are you? But it was God who said to Adam, where are you? In other words, you've left your right place with me. You've chased sin. You've engaged in something else. Your best posture, the posture you need to be in, is worship and engagement with me. Where'd you go? And when we leave off worshiping, that question might rightly be asked of us. Where did you go? By the way, that's when I've got people who wander from the faith, that's the scripture I send them. I just send them that text, where are you, oh man? Uh, so if you ever get that one from me. <laughs> the second misconception. The first misconception, God needs me to worship him. No, he doesn't. But you need to be worshiping God. Second misconception is that worship is singing. Worship is singing. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, we sing every week. Didn't we just worship God? Yes, I hope so. But let me ask the question this way. Is it possible to sing without worshiping? Absolutely it is. Of course it is. Have I been asking you guys too many trick questions? Some of you are afraid to answer. You're like looking at me like, I'm not going to nod my head either way. What is the distinction? What makes singing worship versus not worship? Is it the type of music? Is it the words you say? No. In fact, if you want an illustration of this, go on YouTube and type in the word oceans. This is a Christian song that a lot of gals like to sing because it kind of highlights their voice. And so there are, I'm not saying that everybody who sings oceans is necessarily not worshiping God, but I'm saying when 10,000 women post videos of themselves singing a song that everyone else has sung already, is it really to throw honor at God? Or might the honor be redirected back at somebody else? What then makes singing into worship? I'm going to answer this in more detail as we go along. But in case somebody zones out or falls asleep before then, let me just do it in brief. All right? Singing is worship when the heart and the mind are expressing love, devotion, submission, and service. When what we're saying with our mouths is matched by our intention and will within. A quick application here. I mentioned this last week. When you sing a song, do not just say the words. Mean the words. 
Let that be the intention of your heart. And if you can't mean the words, then don't say the words. Wait until you can. Meditate on it. Think about it until it becomes a truth for you. Be careful here. I was in a worship service with uh, my youth minister back when I was in high school, and we were singing that song, I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. (laughs) And seriously, I'm not kidding, we were on like the thousandth time we went through that. And he looked over at me and he went, could you though? And I, I honestly, I was like, that's hilarious. And I kind of stopped singing for a little while because I'm like, I'm not meaning this at this point. But I wanted to be careful with that. The ideas need to match what is said. Uh, let me use an illustration to distinguish the two here. Um, married couples, and we'll, we'll draw on the women to help with this illustration. Uh, women, let's imagine you're walking through the grocery store with your husband, okay? And even the unmarried gals, you can just visualize this. Walking through the, the store with a husband, and you're walking down the aisle that has the Hallmark cards. And he picks up a card, and he opens it up, and he reads some sappy, sentimental something. But he's not directing it at you. He just read it in the card. And then he puts it back on the shelf. Are you like, oh, I'm swooning. <laughs> does, does, does it feel meaningful and powerful to you? No, he just read something. But by contrast, imagine that same man uh, that evening, he ta- he's like, I want to take you out to dinner, and, and he specializes a time for you, and he sits down, and he grabs your hands from across the table, and he looks into your eyes, and he, he voices those same sentiments, but they came from him, not from a card. Does it mean something now? Yes. It's the same way with God. To just say words can mean nothing, but to mean the words and to direct them toward God can mean everything radically changes what worship is. Worship is not just singing. It has to be qualified with intentionality. Worship is, as a third uh, misconception, worship is not all about just me and God. It's not just me and God. Now, a lot of churches structure themselves so that they try to create an experience that is just you and God. So they'll, dark, they'll darken the room, and they have you. It's just like just you and the words on the screen. Right? You're engaged with that. It's just you and God. I'm not saying that you should not worship God on your own. I'm not saying even that that type of, of worship uh, setting is necessarily bad. What I'm saying is this. There's something different about when the church gathers together that makes it special and unique and different than just you worshiping. Something significant happens when we, the body of Christ, gather. Let me say that again. I am not the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. I am not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Amen? I am not the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. It is when we collectively get together, something special happens. I can think of few things more inappropriate than pretending that your fellow believers are not there when you've gathered to honor God. It's not right. It's weird, actually, trying to pretend like nobody else is around you. Now, some of you might be thinking, but people are a distraction. Hey, I've known some of those people. I am that person a lot of the time. People are a distraction. And let me say that if your goal in worship is to gather to have some kind of a mystical feeling, uh, what my brother has called the Holy Ghost heebie-jeebies, right? If, if the goal is to have that, then perhaps you're not here to worship God anyway. Are you looking for an emotion, a sentiment, some kind of weird feeling? Show me in the scripture where you're told that the goal of singing is so that you can become emotional. It's not there. Our goal when we gather to sing is to be his community of called out ones, giving him glory as a collective, as a group, giving him honor as his family. That's what's supposed to be happening. It's important that we worship together. How's it important to worship? together. But what if somebody is singing off key or clapping off beat? That's going to happen. That's normal. Look around at your own family. Are all your siblings perfect? No, neither are you. Whatever other thing you might be thinking of as a distraction is only a distraction if you're operating under the assumption that these people are obstacles getting between you and God or between, more appropriately, you and your experience. These are your fellow believers, fallen, failed, saved, and redeemed. That's who these people are. 
We are collectively gathering to give him as much as we can collectively muster, and it still falls utterly short of what God deserves. Amen? Worshiping is meant to be a communal experience. It's not just about me and God. God does not need our worship. Singing is not necessarily worship unless there are some other elements involved. And worship is not just about me and God. Uh, Last misconception, worshiping God is an optional part of church life. It's optional. Remember week one when we gathered together, I said, church is not a spectator event. Church is not a spectator event. You're not just meant to be sitting and watching something going on. Now, don't get me wrong. I think conversation at the coffee bar out there is a lot of fun. I do it too. Conversation in the parking lot. And our church is really good at that. It can just go on forever. Conversation in the parking lot between services is awesome. A desire to fellowship is good and godly. Take that out to lunch. Go spend more time with one another. What a wonderful experience. But treating the song service, the reading of scripture, and prayer as if it's the warm-up act is not right. It is not righteous, it is not godly, it is not good. I want you to think very quickly about what removing yourself from corporate worship says. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. It's that book that forms forms the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. What does removing myself from corporate worship say? What does it say to the the congregation? says this, your companionship is unimportant to me. I have something more important to do than joining my voice with yours before the Lord. That's not good. That is not righteous and it is not right. What does it say to God? What does it say to God when I pull outside of the worship service and I say, I, I, just, I need to be there for just the sermon? Or, it, you know, the, the service starts at point whatever. Everyone say the word Blasphemy. Man, that's a scary word. Blasphemy. It even sounds scary, right? What does it mean? Blasphemy is profaning something that is sacred, taking something that is holy, that is set apart, and making it ordinary or mundane. We engage in blasphemy when we disregard the worship that we're supposed to be engaging with and with God. That is a blasphemous act. Know this too. Blasphemy can also mean giving God less than he deserves. Do you think God deserves everything that you can muster in a worship service? Yeah. In Malachi chapter 1, God speaks to the prophet Malachi, and he chastises the people for what they're bringing into his altar. You see, the people were supposed to be bringing sacrifices to God. And they looked around at their herd, and they had regulations for what was an acceptable sacrifice, but they went, who's paying attention? Who cares? And so rather than bringing their best before God, they began bringing animals that were lamed, and animals that were blind and old. In other words, they were giving God their leftovers, the worst of their herds. Here's what Malachi says. This is the word of the Lord coming through a prophet. Verse 10. If only there were one among you who would shut the gates so that you would not kindle fire on my altar for nothing. If only there were somebody to shut the doors. To make the equivalent here, it would be like if God spoke to this congregation and said, if only at CFLM there were an elder who would lock the doors and barricade them before everybody showed up and did what they did in a worship service. Do you get the sense of how serious this is to God? I would rather you not be here at all than show up and incriminate yourself by doing the wrong thing. He says, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies nor will I accept an offering for your hand, from your hand. For far from the, or from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name shall be great among the nations, and in every place frankincense is going to be offered to my name, a grain offering that is pure, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. By the way, that is a prophecy about the Gentiles becoming his people. That's a prophecy about us. He's saying, when he says the nations, he means all the people groups of the world. That's us. But look at verse 12 and 13. But you, he says of his people, are profaning it by saying the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its uh, fruit, its food is to be despised or looked down on. Check out verse 13. You also say, see how tiresome it is. And you view it as trivial. Catch these two ideas. It's people looking at the process of worship that God has prescribed for his people and saying, oh, we did this last week. Oh, do we have to do it again? 
or treating it as trivial. It doesn't really mean that much whether or not I sing. I mean, there are other people in there singing. There are other people in there praying. And God says, man, I'd wish you'd shut the door before showing up like that. God did not ask for our leftovers. Amen? God deserves more than just whatever sort of you feel like giving him. God deserves all of us. Can we prioritize worship together as a congregation? That was not enthusiastic enough. Can we prioritize worship as a congregation? That was still pretty half-hearted. Can we prioritize getting in here to worship as a congregation? That's better. That felt a little more right. All right, let's talk then about what worship is. We've talked about what it's not. Let's talk about what it is. I want to go to the original languages so we can maybe unpack some of the powerful meaning that is behind some of what we read when we hear the word worship. Worship translated. Our word worship comes from an old English word, worship, which is kind of fun to say. Worship, which just means worthiness. I ascribe worth to something or meritousness. I value something. All right, so when we say the word worship, we mean it's worth something. And and certainly that applies to how we talk about God, but the problem with that word is it does not express meaningfully what we read in the Greek and Hebrew. Was the Bible written in English? Not initially. No. So let's go back to the original languages and let's see how they can maybe inform what we understand about worship. We worship when we submit to God. We worship when we submit to God. When do we worship? When we submit to God, Uh, close your eyes for just a moment. I want to give you a mental picture. I want you to just visualize something, and I want you to retain this. I want you to imagine Jesus Christ standing before you, and I I want you to visualize yourself laying on your face in front of him. Can you visualize that? Hold that in mind. Okay, go ahead and open up your eyes for just a moment. I want you to retain that image for for the rest of our time talking and hopefully for the rest of your lives. When we enter into God's presence, that should be our spiritual posture. All right, now now I want want to say this. Uh, We don't bow very often, do we? I mean, how often you run into somebody at Perkins and you're like, my leash, right? It just doesn't happen very often. Or, Or fall down before that person and touch your head to the ground. That's just not a normal part of our culture, but ancient Eastern cultures knew this idea very well. That posture says something. When you come in and you bow down, what it's saying is, you're greater than me. I put myself under you and under your authority. It was normal in the ancient world for a son to go up to his father or grandfather, and when you encountered him, you didn't just come up and go, Dad, you came in and you flopped down in front of him. You would kneel down before him. You were greater than I. That's what you're communicating. When somebody came in front of a king and they knelt down before a king and they got on their knees, you're also saying, I'm putting myself at your mercy. You have power over my life. And it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for people to actually be killed in a posture of submission before the king. When we come before our Lord, we are submitting to him. Let's look at how this works itself out in these original languages. There are two words that are used, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, that convey exactly this, and we translate them worship. The Hebrew term is shakah, and the Greek term is proskuneo. It accounts for more than 80% of the times that the word worship is used in the Bible. Proskuneo refers to this posture of submission. It comes from two Greek words, pros, which means toward, and kuneo, I was very pleased some of the high schoolers remembered this. Kuneo means to kiss, to kiss toward. The idea is like blowing a kiss or giving love to somebody or something. But in the Greek context, it came to be known not just as like blowing a kiss, but it came to be known as sort of kissing the ground in front of someone that you wanted to honor. So proskuneo, kiss toward, literally meant to go down on your knees and bow down before the one you want to honor. And we translate that worship. The term in the the Hebrew is shakah. Shakah literally means to bow down. And we see this translated not just as worship in the Old Testament, but we'll also see it translated as bowed down sometimes. The difference is between who is being bowed toward. So for instance, Lot, when he is... You know, he's down in Sodom, 
and the angels of God come into his household. And Lot has not met them before, but he sees them and we read that he shakah before them. He bows down before them. I don't know who you are or what you're about, but you're different and I'm submitting to you. When Moses meets his father-in-law, when he sees him, he bows down before him. Why? Because that man was super great in every way. No, because he wanted to show honor and reverence and respect and submission to his father-in-law. He shakah. He bowed down. When Abigail meets David, if you remember this interchange in the Old Testament, Abigail's husband's name is Naaman, which means fool, and he was literally a fool. He ticked off, David had been protecting his herds for the full season, and he would not offer David and his men anything. And David says, I'm going to kill that guy. And David was on his way to kill that man when Abigail, the wife of Naaman, shows up and she says, please, my Lord. She falls down in front of him. She in front of him. I submit myself to you. My husband is a fool. Do not kill him. Shaka. Is that the way we are entering the presence of God? Where is bowing down in the modern church? Well, if you come from a Catholic tradition, you'll, you'll know you got kind of the Catholic calisthenics. I, I, I kind of like being in Catholic churches sometimes for that reason. You know what I mean? They've got the, like the kneeling stand that they put down, and it's kind of like stand up, sit down, kneel, sit, stand. And so, so you kind of run through that. In some Protestant churches, there is a bowing that takes place where people will literally like bow down before the Lord in some worship services. But usually where we see it translated into the modern context is when I say, let's pray. And what does everybody around the room do? All right, we just bow our heads. That's what it's become right? We don't want to lose this concept as we come into worship for our God. The idea of bowing before him sometimes gets lost in translation. When we come before the Lord, we think of yourself in that position, lying down before Jesus Christ. We are putting ourselves in a position of submission. You are greater than I. You, my life belongs to you. You are my God. I am your slave and servant, and yet you call me friend. There is a submission that takes place there. Worship, first of all, I want you to remember this. Worship is about a spiritual posture. When we enter into this room, are you going, oh, coffee's okay today. Mm, I don't like that song. Or are you going, I'm coming before my Lord right now, and I'm bowing down before him. Lord, I'm falling on my face before you. You are great, and I acknowledge such. When we worship God, we submit to him. When we submit to God, we worship him. When we put ourselves under his authority, we worship him. Secondly, we worship God when we serve God. I mentioned that about 80% of the usages in the scriptures of worship are that bowing down. Another thing that is... uh, translated as worship, is serving God. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I want you to hold this passage for just a little bit here while we talk about this. Romans chapter 12. Some of the modern translations have done a better job of translating this text and getting a bit more of the meaning here. Service to God. Close your eyes for just a second. I want you to visualize this before we jump into this passage. I want you to visualize yourself kneeling down or laying down at the feet of Jesus. And secondly, I want, to, I want you to visualize yourself offering something up to him, like holding something up to him. Just hold that image for a minute. We're going to fill it in more in just a moment. Okay, look at your passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies or the pity of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your spiritual service of worship. The term Paul uses here is letteria, and it's literally translated as service, or here's the best translation of it, your reasonable, logical service. Your reasonable or logical service to God. That's the idea that we translate as worship. So what does serving God do to make it worship? What does that mean to serve God? We already mentioned this other passage, Psalm 50, where God says, I've got everything I want. I have every beast in the forest. I've got every cattle, cattle, thousand hills, every bird bird I belong belongs to me. And I, and I indicated that God has all things, but there is one thing that God, by his own design, does not have. One thing that you can withhold from him. 
It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. You're the one thing that can be held back from God. He gave you the opportunity to say no to him about whether or not you deliver him your life. Paul uses this same root word when he talks about taking up a monetary gift and giving it to Jerusalem. The same word that's translated worship is translated gift, an offering, a gift. When Jesus came and he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, he's using that same term. I didn't come uh, just so that you would give me things. I came to give you something. And so this term for worship means to give something. What is the one thing we can give God that he, is, he has no capacity to get other than you offering it to him? It's you. So I want you to visualize yourself again, laying down at the feet of Jesus, and you're offering something up to him. And I want you to think, as odd as this is, I want you to think about the thing in your hands being you. You are giving him yourself. Now look again at Romans chapter 12. Did you see what it said? Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercy or the pity of God, to present, to give your body a living and holy sacrifice. You are the thing being offered up to God. And he says about that, giving yourself to God is the logical or reasonable worship for you. It's the only thing that makes sense. Give yourself to the Lord. Worship is service to God. We are a living sacrifice. The, the idea that we come to do something or give something to God might not seem reasonable to you, but I, I want you to think about how we normally enter our worship services and how contrasting our attitude is most of the time. I, I'm coming to give something to God. I, I want you to think about how often you've heard somebody say something like this. They walk out of a worship service and they go, I didn't get a lot out of worship today. I didn't get a lot out of worship today. Are you kidding? Do you know how backward that is? Do you know how upside down your view of worship is if you leave a service going, yeah, I didn't get a lot out of it? Who's, who's the worship for? It is about what we give to God. Worship didn't connect with me today. Your pronouns are wrong. You are to be offering something to him. It's not the other way around. We worship when we submit to God. We worship when we serve God. And we worship when we agree with God. Do you agree? Yeah, you should. Amen. There's a Greek word that expresses this beautifully. The Greek word is homologeo. Homo means one. Logeo, logic or word. One word. And it means I am one word with you. We say the same word. We agree. This is worship. To agree with God is worship. We are of one word with him. And here's the thing about that. Humility is required to agree with God. You might be thinking, what's so hard about agreeing with God? Well, agreement with God does not often jive with the modern church. And yes, I just said jive and modern in the same sentence. <laughs> agreeing with God means that I have to agree with him when he assesses who I am. He tells me who I am. It's not my definition that matters, it's his. And so I have to go along with what he's saying. When I agree with God, I'm agreeing not, not just to what he has said about me, but to some degree I am agreeing to give up on my own sufficiency. I'm not good enough. You know the central gospel message? Sometimes when I break down the gospel for people, I'll say it this way. Here's the good news, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You stink and you're never going to be good enough. Oh, that's good news. It is because he provided a way. He made a way for you to be completely cleansed and fixed and made right. When we agree with God, we're saying, I'm not good enough. My own efforts are never going to get me to where you want to be. And there is a freedom in that. If you have not expressed this to God before, try that today. Lord, I'm not good enough. The Hebrew word that describes this idea is shaka. Everyone say shaka. The Hebrew is great for like helping you clean out your throat. You know what I mean? Just you got to get that phlegm up every time you say shaka. Agreeing to give up on my sufficiency. Here's what shaka means. Um, I'm sorry, I said shaka. I, I used the wrong word. Yada is the, the word I meant. You guys didn't want to say it because I said the wrong word. Yada. Everyone say yada. Yeah. All right. Yada is literally to hold out and extend your hands and throw away something. Now, it was used in the Hebrew context this way. 
Think of warfare. You had arrows in your hand, or maybe you had sling stones in your hand, and the idea was, when I'm beaten, I throw it away, and I just hold out my hands. It's the equivalent of putting your hands up uh, when being arrested or something. It's, I, I give up. I give up. And so the idea was not just throwing away something, it was also to extend the hands in worship, which is why sometimes you'll see people in the room doing this or raising your hand. It's a very biblical concept. It also means wringing the hands, as in, I am not good enough, and kind of worrying over self. I'm not right. When we agree with God about our insufficiency, it changes the whole feel of the church. If every one of us showed up every Sunday morning going, ah, I am not good enough, instead of just looking at other people around the room and thinking, they're not good enough, how different would the church feel? How much more patient would we be? How much more gracious? How much more full of pity would the church be if we agreed with God about who we are? Amen? We also proclaim agreement. Psalm 118, verse 17, David says this, I will not die but live, and I will tell of the works of the Lord. That is a weak translation. I will tell of the works of the Lord. Here's what he means. I'm going to shout out the works of the Lord. I'm going to proclaim the works of the Lord. Those things that are true, I am going to say them. And here's what it means for us. Worship involves getting vocal. It involves getting vocal, saying something. This is a concept of agreement that says not only do I agree, but I'm going to let people know that I agree. That's why it's important when we say amen or I agree, we are engaging in worship. It is agreement with God. The term that is used by David here is so far, and, and here's what it means. This is what Rachel was talking about earlier. It means to keep a tally. It's marking down a tally. I agree with you. <laughs> Here's the scorecard. Scoreboard, God, you're winning. God, you are correct. God, you are ultimately right about everything. You're keeping a tally or record. It also means to enumerate intensively. If you've ever been in the auditorium where, you know, if you've got a basketball game running or something, and one team is blowing out the other one, and you've got some back and forth between the crowds, and one group starts yelling, scoreboard, scoreboard. You know who's winning, Right? And this is essentially what's being said here. God, you're winning. God, you're in control. God, I am keeping a record of what you have done and what you're doing. You're right. Proclaiming it. God's people profess our agreement with God. And when we do so, when we say amen, I agree, we are worshiping. In a song service, when the words come out of our mouths and we agree with the sentiment as it is coming out of our mouths, we are worshiping God. This same conception is used in Romans chapter 10, Acts 23, 1 Timothy 6, Hebrews 11 to indicate a profession or confession of faith. I worship you. I confess you. Let's close out. I want to talk about what the worshiping church looks like. Warren Wearsby offers a broad definition based uh, on these concepts of worship that we've just seen, and he writes this about worship. Here's what he says. Worship is the believer's response of all that he is, mind, emotions, will, body, to all that God is and says and does. All that I am offered for all of who he is. He says, this response has its mystical side in the subjective experience and its practical side in objective obedience to God's revealed truth. It is a loving response that is balanced by fear of the Lord, and it is a deepening response as the believer comes to know God better and better and better. We should worship better today than we did last week. We should worship better next week than we did today. Because the more you know about God, the more deep your worship of him should be. Let's dwell for a few moments on what Wharton Wearsby said about congregational worship here. Let's talk very briefly about emotions. Now, we did a uh, sermon series called Feeding just a few months back, and we talked about emotions, and we said that emotions, are emotions good? They can be. Can emotions be bad or wrong? They can be, right? And it all depends on whether or not the emotions, remember the train illustration, the emotions are following the facts of God, which should be drawing the train. Emotions can be good, but here's what I find in the church. A lot of people think emotions are equivalent to worship. And they believe that a worship service was good if I felt emotional. And a worship service was bad if I did not feel emotional. Again, based on the definitions we just used, could that possibly be justified? No. 
I hope that you have emotional worship. I certainly do, especially when I'm meditating and thinking deeply on the songs. But it is not the job of people who are up here on stage to drag you kicking and screaming into an emotional experience. Amen? The emotions should be part of the worship experience, but they would be a cheap substitute for real worship. What about the mind? Is the mind an obstacle to worship? It can be. Or it might not be. I, I believe that being cerebral does not mean you can't worship God or that you worship God less. Indeed, if you paid attention to what Wearsby said, the deeper you know Jesus, the more deeply you will end up worshiping Jesus. But I do want to say this. Genuine worship cannot be merely an intellectual enterprise. God is not a concept. God is a person which means he's not just there for your acknowledgement, he's there for your engagement. You're meant to interact during the time of worship. I want you to consider Blaise Pascal as an illustration of this. Does that name sound familiar to any of you, Blaise Pascal? If you've had a math class, you, you might be like, oh, um, yeah, I think I heard of that guy. Blaise Pascal was one of the greatest minds to have ever lived. He was a French mathematician, a philosopher, uh, what we call a natural philosopher, which, which means a proto, natural philosopher is like a proto-scientist. Uh, he was also a theologian and a devout disciple of Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal passed away, and his friends were going through his belongings, moving through the things that he had, and they found in his waistcoat, that's the coat that he wore every day, they found stitched into the lining of this doublet a scrap of parchment. And the scrap of parchment had a rough drawing of a cross surrounded by flame. And then it had a poem written around it. And here's what the poem said. It's entitled Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and learned. Certitude, which means certainty. Certitude, joy, certitude, emotion, sight, joy, forgetfulness of the world and all that is outside of God. The world hath not known thee, but I hath known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. My God, wilt thou leave me? Never let me be separated from thee forever. Does that sound like the words of a cold-hearted intellectual? This was one of the most brilliant minds in history, and he worshiped the Lord with his mind, and with his emotion. Did you feel the emotion? My word. Pascal was responding to the very personal presence of God in his life. His contemplation led him to worship. Jonathan Edwards, if I say the word Jonathan Edwards, probably most people in this room think, oh, wait a minute, we had to read a sermon by that guy in high school called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Did you read that? Did you have to do that? And it, it's this kind of hell and brimstone discussion. Jonathan Edwards was a powerful and devout Christian, though. Jonathan Edwards, after he had died, one of the things that was published from him was one of his intimate experiences of worship with the Lord. He says this, The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent. Ineffable is a great word. Ineffable means it can't be put into words. So it's a word in the English language that means it can't be put into words. Ineffable. Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued near as I could judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. We find out that Ed Edwards experienced this moment of worship in a time of contemplation and prayer. What I'm going to tell you next is the most important thing I'm probably going to say today. Hang on to this. With regard to emotion, emotion is a cheap substitute for worship. The mind by itself cannot worship God if, if God is not being encountered, relationally speaking. But this is the most important thing. In order to worship God, the will must be engaged. The will must be engaged. You and I, every time we gather together, have to choose to worship God. We have to make a choice. We step into the room, and again, I want you to visualize this image of yourself lying down before Jesus, offering him up something, and what is that something? It's me. And then we agree with him, and when we do all those things, we're worshiping, but we need to enter God's presence with the intentionality of going, this is what's happening right now, and I will make this happen right now. Let's look at David's commandment. Everybody turn your Bibles to Psalm 103. We'll close out on this. Psalm 103. Uh, the two young boys we've got in our house 
are a phenomenal young man. I love them dearly. Um, but, you know, they come from a rough backdrop. Uh, neglect. Um, maybe worse things. Uh, and so they've brought a lot of kind of baggage with them. And, uh, and we have to resolve it. And so sometimes they'll break into these emotional fits and they'll get upset and angry and hostile. And uh, one of the things I tell them over and over again is you've got to coach yourself. You've got to tell yourself the right thing to do and stop yourself and move yourself back and put yourself in the right position. You have to talk to yourself in that way. It is a matter of the will. And I'm not saying that they're made righteous before God by doing that, but what I'm trying to tell them is you've got to have some control over who you are, what you think, and what you do. And so I illustrate it with him. I say, look, if, if I'm about to do something wrong, I say, Ben, stop, think. What are you doing? Change your heart. Change your mind right now. I know you want to be angry. Stop. Redirect yourself. This is not who Christ is. This is not who you are to be, Ben. And I, I, I talk to myself like that. Hopefully not out loud. Do you? Do you call yourself to the mat on issues over and over again in life? Do you, do you speak to yourself? Do you coach yourself in the right way to live, work, function, and think? If not, it is your Christian duty to do such. Look at Psalm 103, 1 and 2. You might not have ever noticed this before. This should sound familiar to most of you. Here's David. He says, Bless the Lord my soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord my soul and do not forget any of his benefits. Sound familiar? Who's David talking to? Yeah, I mean, the Psalms, I mean, they're normally directed to God. It's, it's a prayer. It's a praise given to the Lord. But look at who he's talking to. Listen again. Bless the Lord, my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul, and do not forget any of his benefits. This is David before he enters into a time of worship going, listen, soul, this is what you're going to do today. You're going to bless God. You're coming into his presence, and you're going to give him something. You're going to present yourself to him. Bless the Lord, my soul. And all that is within me is going to be offered up to him like that. That would be worship. This is David coaching himself before he honors God, and we should do the same thing. Look back at those doors. We should do this. Look back at those doors. <laughs> my neck won't turn that far. Every time we walk through those doors, it's not that this place is necessarily a sacred place, but we are a sacred people. And when we gather together, we must engage the will and say, this is what you will do today, soul. You will offer God what is due him. That is what worship looks like. Let's honor him by our submission to him. Let's honor him by serving him. Let's worship him by agreeing with him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to agree with you, and we want to give you all that is due you, Father. Lord, I pray forgiveness for the times where we've offered you less than we ought to bring. And I want to pray, uh, Father, for this congregation that as we go forward in time, Lord, that every one of us would have a little battle of the will as we walk into this room. And whether it be a thousand times in the rest of our lives or one week, however many times we need to have that battle, Father, that we would choose and choose and choose to give you legitimate worship. Thank you, Father, for allowing us into the inner court, into the holy of holies, to experience you firsthand. We love you, God, and we praise you for loving us. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.